The title of this evening's talk is The Liberating Embrace of Anicca, Impermanence. And beginning with some words from the Buddha. So you should view this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. And some words from Crowfoot, who was a leader of the Blackfoot American Indian tribe in the early 1990s, or the early 1900s, excuse me. What is life? It is the flash of a firefly in night. It is the breath of buffalo in wintertime. It is the little shadow which runs across the grass and loses itself in the sunset. And from physicist, astronomer, and writer Adam Frank, who very recently said this, From birth to the unknown moment of our passing, we ride a river of change. And yet, in spite of all the evidence to the contrary, we exhaust ourselves in an endless search for solidity. We hunger for something that lasts, some idea or principle that rises above time and change. We hunger for certainty. That's a big problem. It might even be the problem, says Adam Frank. A Tibetan monk told me about a place where he grew up in a very isolated area high in the mountains of Tibet where people have no access to matches and of course there's no electricity or gas uh, for light and for warmth and for cooking. So for these necessities of life in this part of the world, a fire is necessary. To start a fire without matches uh, each day new, anew is a big project. <clears throat> it takes quite a bit of time. This monk said that the people in this area of Tibet never let their fires go out. He told me that every day, all day every day, they keep a small fire burning. And at night they cover it with ashes uh, just enough so that in the morning there's at least a glowing coal or two to start their day. He also told me that the Buddhist monks in this area practice so deeply with impermanence uh, as their practice that at night they don't try to save any coals because they're so sure that in the morning there's always the chance that they might not be alive. He said that also when they finished finish their last cup of tea at night, they turn their cup over for this same reason, to let the next person know that they have finished, really finished. So, a deep practice of impermanence, really a very primary practice for these monks. Every night, in a sense, they prepare to die. 
they're ready. The deep knowing and living with impermanence is an entryway, a gateway to liberation, a gateway to freeing the mind, freeing the heart. So consider this. The only thing that we can really know for sure is the constancy of change. It's really the most basic fact of our existence. Nothing lasts. Nothing stays the same. So, paradoxically, the only thing that we can hold on to is the realization, the intuitive insight of anicca, the intuitive insight of impermanence. The wisdom, the understanding of anicca is really the bedrock of the Buddha's teachings. It was the initial insight that impelled him to leave the palace uh, where he was born and grew up in search of a path to awakening, a path to liberation. Siddhartha Gautama, our Buddha, so to say, grew up in very comfortable and protected surroundings in an area of India at the foot of the Himalayan mountains that is now known as Nepal, seemingly living the good life. His father and his mother were the king and the queen of the Sakyan clan in that area. And at Siddhartha's birth, a local wise man told his parents that this baby would grow up to be either an exceptionally wise ruler or he would become a renunciate and a great spiritual teacher if he encountered great suffering. Well, of course, his parents, in order to keep him on the kingly track, that was their wish, uh, set about to protect him from encountering uh, as much suffering as they possibly could. <clears throat> and this is from one of, his, one of the Buddha's discourses to his monks. Monks, I lived in refinement, utmost refinement, total refinement. My father even had lotus ponds made in our palace, one where red lotuses bloomed, one where white lotuses bloomed, and one where blue lotuses bloomed, all for my sake. A white sunshade was held over me day and night to protect me from the cold, heat, dust, dirt, and dew. I had three palaces, one for the cold season, one for the hot season, and one for the rainy season. And during the four months of the rainy season, I was entertained in the rainy season palace by minstrels without a single man among them. And I did not once come down from that palace. But all this protection and luxury and sensual pleasure just couldn't keep him. It didn't really satisfy. And at one point, as young people are wont to do, Siddhartha wanted to go out and see what life was like beyond the palace walls. And so he asked his good friend, the chariot driver, Chana, to take him for a ride through town. Well, his father uh, heard of this, and ordered 
ordered uh, everything and anyone that uh, might cause some disturbance to his son to be taken out of view. But, of course, we know that it's just not possible to have this kind of control over lives. So, not long after Chana and young Siddhartha were uh, out beyond the palace walls on their chariot ride, Siddhartha saw a person walking along the road with a lot of difficulty and covered with oozing sores. He'd never seen anything like this before. And he said to Chana, what's this? What's wrong with this person? And his friend responded, this is a very sick person. We all get sick. You'll get sick. I'll get sick. Your parents will get sick. At some point, everybody gets sick. Well, Siddhartha had been so protected, it said, that he'd never seen such a sick person. And he was quite disturbed by the sight. And he said to Chana, let's go home. So they went back. And he had a pretty restless mm-hmm. night. But he wanted to go out again the next day. So they went down the road, and as they were riding along, Siddhartha noticed someone moving very slowly, bent over with a cane, with dry, wrinkled skin and thin, white, wispy hair. And he'd never seen anything quite like this before. And he said to Chana, what's the matter with this person? And Chana responded, this is an old person. Everyone gets old. You'll get old, your parents will get old, I'll get old. All your friends will get old. Everybody gets old. Well, Siddhartha said, okay, enough. Let's go back to the palace. He spent another quite restless night that night. But he wanted to go out again the next morning. So off went Chana and Siddhartha. And soon after they were out, they saw a group of people all dressed in white. And they were crying and wailing. And they were carrying a plank above their heads with something on it that was covered with cloth. <clears throat> and Siddhartha said, what's this? And what's going on here? And, and what is it that they're carrying? And Chana responded, this is a funeral procession. And they're carrying a dead body. And he went on to say, everybody dies. I'll die, you'll die, your parents will die, everyone dies. Well, again, Siddhartha was quite disturbed and said, oh, enough for today. Let's go home. Well, that night, he barely slept. But he wanted to go out again the next day, and so off they went. And not long after they were out, Siddhartha noticed a man who was draped in orange cloth, and he was walking down the road. And he was walking with a lightness and a grace and a flow about him. And he was bearing an air of peacefulness and ease. And Siddhartha said, who's that? And Chana said, this man is a renunciate, a yogi. He's let go of his regular worldly life in search of the truth. And Siddhartha responded, oh, okay, let's go home. This is enough. It's said that because of Siddhartha's many lifetimes of development 
into an extremely sensitive and compassionate human being, the sights that he saw, the four heavenly messengers as they've come to be called in the Buddhist teachings, uh, sickness, old age, death, and a, a truth seeker, a yogi, that these four messengers struck him very deeply, quite profoundly. He was moved by the impermanent, insubstantial nature that the first three messengers displayed, and also by the very obvious suffering that he witnessed in relation to these same three first messengers. And he found himself interested and quite powerfully drawn towards what the fourth heavenly messenger represented, seeking peace, seeking freedom, seeking the truth. And again from one of the Buddha's discourses, even though I was endowed with such fortune, such total refinement, the thought occurred to me. When an untaught person subject to aging, to illness, and to death, not beyond any of this, sees another who is aged, ill, or dead, she or he is often horrified, humiliated, fearful, and disgusted, oblivious that he or she, too, is subject to aging, illness, and death. And if I, who am subject to aging, illness, and death, not beyond any of these things, were to be horrified, humiliated, fearful, and disgusted on seeing another person who was old, ill, or dead. That would not be fitting for me. And he goes on. As I notice this, the healthy person's intoxication with youth, health, and life entirely dropped away. Why should I, who am subject to disease, old age, and death, seek that which is also subject to disease, aging, and death. Monks, there are three forms of intoxication. Intoxication with youth, intoxication with health, intoxication with life. And the Buddha goes on to say, I overcame all intoxication with health, youth, and life as one who sees renunciation as rest. For me, energy arose. Unbinding was clearly seen. One of the most prevalent myths that we live with, often quite unconsciously, is the myth that we can control this changing experience we call life. The Buddha talked about how powerful and how consequential it is to experience just one moment really fully absorbed in the feeling of metta. He also said that even more powerful and more fruitful than this is when there's one moment of clearly seeing the rapidity of the arising and passing away of phenomena. The stage in our practice where one knows very clearly and surely the momentariness of all appearances, the very powerful direct experience and the deep knowing of impermanence. 
the seed of liberation, the seed of freedom, lies in this clarity of seeing and knowing. And some words from the Buddha. What is born will die. What has been gathered will be dispersed. What has been accumulated will be exhausted. What has been built up will collapse. And what has been high will be brought low. All conditioned things are transitory. Those who realize this are freed from sorrow. This is the path to freedom. Everything in this world, everything in this universe begins and ends, is born and dies, is constantly changing form. Every form of life, every object, every relationship, every sensation, every thought, every feeling, every mind state, every perception, every experience, every breath. The world of form outside and the world of form within, none of it is static. Our earth feels, for many of us, so solidly here, seems so permanently in place. Some years ago I received a postcard from a friend that had a beautiful photograph on its front side, some sand dunes with mountains behind them. And looking at this photograph was a very pleasant experience. I turned the card over and this was the explanation on the back. The gypsum forming these dunes originated from dry flats 20 miles west of the park, deposited as seabed evaporites some 250 million years ago when an ocean covered this area, creating at that time the limestone reef known today as the Guadalupe Mountains. Approximately 10 to 12 million years ago, when this region was uplifted and erosion began, the eroding gypsum was left along the streams and riverbanks, and later the prevailing southwest winds blew it up against the base of the Guadalupe Mountains. So after reading that, I turned the card back over to the photo side and saw it with a different eye and yet still with a very pleasurable feeling in viewing a beautiful photograph. The places that we live in often appear and feel maybe as though uh, they've forever been the way they are now, at least at times or in moments. Our attitude and our actions often reflect this. I taught a Dhamma in Israel every few years over a a 10-year period of time, a place where so much strife has been going on for centuries around whose place it is. And at one point when I was there, I found out that Jerusalem... Jerusalem is a city built of rock on rock. It's called Jerusalem Stone. That city has been destroyed and rebuilt 13 times over the centuries. With all the traveling that I've done over the years, there have been times when I've looked up into the sky to 
find stars and particular star formations that are familiar, kind of like meeting and seeing old friends, no matter where you are in the world. Some years ago I found this uh, article in a newspaper, and it was titled, Andromeda is Coming. Our own Milky Way galaxy is on a collision course with another galaxy, but you won't need to buy that insurance just yet. The most likely scenario is that Andromeda would first swing by our galaxy. It would then <clears throat> it then would take perhaps a hundred million years to make a slow U-turn before plunging into the Milky Way's core. Another burst of star formation will then occur with winds from the shock waves driving out remaining gas and dust. After that, old and new stars will intermingle to form an elliptical galaxy. There will be no trace of Earth, save perhaps for the 1970s era Pioneer and Voyager probes that are now beyond the solar system. The fireworks aren't due for more than five billion years long after the sun has burned out and reduced Earth to a frigid cinder. Five billion years from now, we'll all be dead anyway, said Hubble scientist Edward Weiler. However, if we move out to the stars someday, our descendants will certainly witness that from somewhere else in the galaxy. The word form implies for us a solidity. But in reality, all forms are forming and unforming, coming together and coming apart, constantly and without end. Our world can't be solidly objectified. Our world internally and externally, isn't a noun, it's a verb. It's constant, incessant activity. And most of the time, we know this only as an abstraction, as a concept. And I think actually, more often we forget it, or we ignore it, or we're constantly distracting ourselves from it by accumulating, by planning, by living in and out of memories, by fantasizing and hoping and expecting and coveting and fearing. If we rigidly hold on to how we want the future to be, or how we want or expect to feel later this evening, or how we want our next sitting to be, all of our energy gets used up in these thoughts. And then, almost inevitably, we come to face disappointment or maybe anger or judgment or sadness or grief. And we've missed the fullness of the present moment. We've missed what Thich Nhat Hanh calls our appointment with life. And we're reinforcing, we're perpetuating the delusion, a false sense of control and permanence. 
So actually, much of the time, we're practicing permanence. Much of the time, I think many people almost desperately want everything to kind of stay as it is, or continue as we know it, or to become the way we want it to be. So much so that we believe we have control, that things will do what we want them to do. But this belief is really only make-believe, made-up beliefs. As our practice deepens and we begin to sense and see and know more clearly, we discover that actually belief has little or nothing to do with reality. And that the tighter we grasp on to our beliefs, the more limited our life is. A good question you might ask yourself now and then is, how often do I construct my life on this kind of flimsy, rickety foundation of make-believe, made-up beliefs, with all of their assumptions, sometimes misinformation, varying and changing opinions and ideas about this and that, and then hold on to it all quite tightly. As we learn to pay a kind of extraordinary attention, a mindful attention, to our experiences of body and mind and heart, we begin to directly touch to experientially know the constant rapidity of change. From the seeming solid solid substantiality of form to the smaller, maybe even minute, micro changes of sensations in the body and the seeming substantiality of thoughts that fly through the mind. There's a a Tibetan teaching that says all thoughts, good, bad, happy, or sad, vanish into emptiness as the imprint of a bird in the sky. There's a story that I'm told is true, I heard it on NPR a number of years ago, about a particular physicist who had done a great deal of research on matter and its components and breaking it all down and finding nothing substantial. And it's said that at some point this physicist went a little crazy and he started wearing huge padded slippers all the time just in case he fell through the floor. It was reported as being a true story. In reality, the very fabric, the very essence of life is change. So why do we fear? Why do we resist this perfectly natural phenomena, change? the beginnings and the endings, the births and the deaths. Why can't we surrender to the truth of the moment? Why do we resist and fear so much of life? 
Without anicca, there would be no life. And some words from Thich Nhat Hanh. If there's no impermanence, the grain of corn will remain a grain of corn forever. And you will never have an ear of corn to eat. Impermanence is crucial to the life of everything. Instead of complaining about impermanence, we might say, long live impermanence. Thanks to impermanence, everything is possible. So, looked at from this perspective, Anicca is actually an amazing natural marvel. The universal movement and the constant change and cycling of all of the life on the planet and the possibility of the immediate presence with the potential joys of this changing process. Not getting caught up. Not getting lost and sinking in hopes and in fears and attachments and regrets. We might consider that all of the life on the planet is dying all of the time. In similar volume, for instance, as the new life that brings beauty and joy and delight to us each spring and the new day or the new life that greets us each morning when we wake up. And from William Blake, he who binds herself to a joy does the winged life destroy, but she who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. It was said by the Buddha that at one time when a male deva was reveling and boasting about the realm of beautiful beings and celestial pleasure that he abided in, and that upon hearing this, a female deva who was a a very dedicated noble disciple of the Buddha thought, this foolish deva imagines his glory to be permanent and unchanging unaware that it's subject to cutting off, perishing, and dissolution. And so this deva, this female deva, spoke the following stanza in order to dispel the delusion of the male deva who was boasting and reveling in all the beauty and uh, celestial pleasure. And she said, Don't you know, you fool, the maxim of the arahants? the maxim of the enlightened ones. Impermanent are all formations. Their nature is to arise and vanish. To live in harmony with this truth brings true happiness. So, how might we move into a deeper exploration and acceptance of the changing nature of things, the way of things, our nature as nature. There are many, many doors uh, for us uh, in our practice, many, many doors for us in our life. Our life is our practice. The Buddha 
said there are 84,000 Dharma doors. So a very practical example related to our meditation practice. You've been sitting for 45 minutes and a degree of stillness and sweetness and tranquility has developed and it's being known. And then the thought comes through, ah, this is really good. I'll just stay here for another hour or maybe even longer. And then, as you're sitting there, strong bodily pain sensations in the legs start up. So maybe you can continue to cling very tightly to your agenda, your hope, your preference to sit another hour and get through the pain and put up with it, tough it out, find a way maybe to get rid of it or maybe try to ignore it. Or somehow maybe pretend it's not even there so that you can meet your preference, meet your goal. This relationship to pain makes it a thing, something solid, substantial, a concept, and something to control so that you can continue with what you've chosen to do to the very set idea that you think will lead to the deepest peace sitting for another hour. Or, maybe you relate to the pain via the without mind, meaning a mind not made up, a mind without any preference, a mind without an agenda, and maybe even without the concept of pain. You might simply directly and intimately Connect with what is. Seeing all the various sensations occurring in your leg and noticing them changing, noticing them moving, recognizing that this sit right now is a meditation with changing sensations. Nothing solid, nothing static, no preference, no clinging to anything in those moments, including a time frame just being with, sensing, seeing, and knowing experience in the midst of the truth of how it is. This is fertile ground for wisdom to sprout up and blossom. Another Dharma door that's always available to us is uh, the mirror of the changing seasons all around us and within us. Many years ago during a three-month retreat that I was sitting at the Insight Meditation Society, I was taking a slow walk through the forest out back behind the meditation center. And it was during the height of autumn color in New England And I was seeing the ground literally carpeted with rich reds and shades of brown and clear yellows and shimmering golds and greens. It was very beautiful. And I was quite immersed in this experience. And then, all of a sudden, a knowing came in. 
not through thought, but a deep intuitive sense that this beauty is death, that the world is dying in its unbearable beauty. After that, I cried. I cried off and on for a couple of days, not continuously, but at times quite deeply. I was grieving the loss of the world, we could say, feeling my heart breaking, and at the same time being quite elated. Though still on a conceptual level, to some degree, it was an opening an opening and a release. Soon after this experience occurred, a friend gave me this haiku. When with breaking heart I realized this world is only a dream, the oak tree looks radiant. This constant cycling and circling the universal movement of life light to dark, to light, to rainstorm, to sunshine, to cloud cover, changing sensations in the body, the movement and the changing sensations of the breath. As we look more closely at our own process through our practice, we might begin to see that we've been living under a kind of assumed identity, the assumed solidity of our body and our thoughts, quickly followed along by clinging on to the thoughts and the feelings and the various emotional states, all the habitual fixations that we live with and believe and call our own, call me, call mine, and think that's who we are. As we practice, we begin to experience and sense and see more directly and clearly and more often that things, that the phenomena of our life aren't necessarily as they appear, or at least as they've appeared up to now. We begin to experience the whole thing, at least, or at least parts of it, as process happening, as changing sensations, changing feelings, as various changing manifestations of the myriad forms of mind and body, each with particular qualities and flavors and textures and constantly changing in themselves on both gross and very subtle levels. So our relationship to all of the forms, both inner and outer, begins to change. The compulsive, addictive grasping and trying to hold on to the passing show begins to loosen its strong attraction. Trying to control what is actually uncontrollable, ungovernable, the ongoing miracle of constant change we call life begins to soften as we begin to, metaphorically, we could say, open our hands and open our heart. 
and we begin to see how excruciating it is to grasp on so tightly. The fear that's underneath this impetus to control, the fear of being with, being in and with life as it is, begins to relax and to open and to weaken. The fear actually begins to fade as we surrender more deeply to the truth of the moment. So now we're practicing anicca. Now we're practicing impermanence. When a particular Dharma student of mine began to connect more deeply with the truth of anicca and the understanding that he really didn't have any control over the unfolding of events, and as he expressed it, not only he not only saw more honestly and clearly and began to accept that his day never went as he planned it, he also began to see and accept that his aging body was no different than the day. He recognized that this too was simply unfolding, undoing, according to conditions that he had absolutely no control over. In a practice interview one evening, he told me that he was beginning his sit each morning before going to work with forgiving his body and forgiving the day before it started. Because, in his words, he said, It never goes as I plan, hope, expect, dream it to be. His habit, this man's habit for many years, had been one of aversion. Primarily a stance of irritation and anger at taking a kind of offensive stance towards things, people, and events not going his way. His early morning forgiveness practice wasn't out of the feeling that the day or his body had or was going to do something wrong and he needed to forgive them for this. Forgiveness was actually coming from the softening heart of acceptance in relationship to how it is. This softening heart was also forgiving itself for the pain that had been experienced for so many years in hardening against how things are. Hardening against the truth that things just naturally arise, change, and pass away without end. Occasionally, people have asked me, as you may sometimes ask yourself, or somebody asks you, uh, or you ask others who meditate, why do you practice? And at one point, uh, when I was asked this, uh, much to my surprise, out of my mouth came, I'm practicing for my death. And so it is. I am practicing for my death. On one level, uh, so that if conditions allow, I'll have the great strength and the clarity of concentration and mindfulness to be really fully present with what we think of as the big death. 
I think for most of us, this moment seems like it'll be a pretty extraordinary moment, extraordinary moment. But actually, it'll just be another moment. Another moment with all, really, of all of the same principles applying that apply to any other moment. Just simply a moment to be with the immediacy of what's occurring. Occurring in the body, the mind, and the heart. So a moment we could say, like any other moment, to be just as you are. A moment to be approached and connected with in a fresh way. Beginner's mind, the don't know mind. A moment, in fact, that has never been experienced before. So one aspect of the big picture of practice is that I'm practicing towards the possibility of being present, really present, in the midst of this moment, that moment. But over the years, the momentary reality of practice in the here and now has been with a mindful presence that recognizes and relinquishes the ways the so-called self keeps recreating what we could call the assumed identity. This delusion of a separate, solid, static me. Recognizing the habitually learned patterns that support selfing. And letting go. Relinquishing this again and again and again. One way this could be said is that it's a practice of seeing the death of who I've thought I was and recognizing the truth of who I am. There are hundreds, thousands, millions of little endings, minute deaths, moment to moment to moment, even just breath by breath, and in ways that we never could have imagined or expected. And as our practice deepens and matures, it gets easier and easier to open to, clearly see, accept, and surrender to this utterly natural phenomena. The assumed solidity, the assumed identity, of me, I, you, that's so frightening to let go of, is seen through our practice more and more just as process, beginning, changing, and ending, again and again and again, every minute, every second, through each sense door, if we're really attentive. So, for example, what appears to be a steady flow of experience, even the presence of consciousness itself, is not as we ordinarily perceive it to be. The reality of body-mind experience can be likened to the separate frames of a film. The illusion being 
as though phenomena happens with an ongoing, continuous flow. When in reality, it's all beginning and ending, arising and falling away on the most minute levels, very rapidly, second by second by second. The acceptance of change, the acceptance of the forming and unforming of the birth and the death is really, truly the acceptance of life and the nature of life. All the aspects of who we think we are just keep changing, including what we think we want, what we think we need, our desires that seem so clear and so strong and so right at any given moment, these too change, and sometimes change quite rapidly, as I'm sure you noticed at times. Quite a number of years ago, uh, another a three-month retreat that I was sitting <clears throat> um, at IMS in the old days, there were shelves in the back, little back room. I don't think it exists anymore, but uh, a little back room behind the dining room. There were shelves for yogis to keep uh, special stashes on, like what they, special teas or vitamins or treats, whatever they might be. And one day I had a stash, and, and one day on top of my stash there was a note. A note from the person whose stash, as it turned out, I didn't know it at the time, was right next to mine and the note was offering me some green tea. I had no idea at that point who this person was. And a very pleasant feeling arose. I'd been noticed. That felt good. And the person was offering me a gift. That felt good. And I like green tea, so that was pretty nice. So very pleasant. I wrote a note thanking the person. No, I didn't write a note because I didn't know. I didn't write a note because I didn't know who it was from. But I, oh, yes, he did say, take it from my stash, which is next next to yours. So I did leave a note at that time. Then a second note, another day or two later, a second note came. And the note was offering me a hat. <laughs> because this person had noticed me going outside without a hat on, and it was beginning to cool off outside. Well, it wasn't a very pleasant feeling that arose with that note. I felt impinged upon. I didn't like the attention at that point, but I answered very politely, and I said, thank you, I have a hat. Then a third note appeared another day or two later, and it was a question, a practice question. Well, a most decidedly unpleasant feeling arose in my mind, followed by a very quick, unmindful reaction to write back a not very nice note. But fortunately, mindfulness and wise discernment kicked in, and I didn't write any note back at all. And, and then the note stopped coming. I didn't respond, and I never got another note. At the end of the retreat, this fellow and I spoke to each other, and he said how grateful he was that I'd stopped responding to his notes 
<laughs> because he was really uncomfortable with the whole thing himself. <laughs> so what is it that's often the root <clears throat> of the particular feeling that arises in relationship to our experience, the feeling, the pleasant or unpleasant feelings in this case. In this story of my three-month retreat, the feelings and the subsequent actions of answering the first two notes and the feeling followed by a reaction in the mind to the third note were very clearly rooted in myself, in me. I didn't know that right away, but it was a really good teaching once I recognized that. As we learn to pay a closer uh, and closer attention, we see that pleasant experience, in fact, sometimes changes into unpleasant experience quickly and vice versa. And we see that pleasant and unpleasant can very quickly move into likes and dislikes and then rapidly move into seeming needs or very strong rejections. We see that we're momentarily relatively happy. We're momentarily relatively unhappy. All relative conditioned states of mind totally dependent on a whole set of conditions which themselves are also changing moment by moment by moment. Something that quite naturally occurs as we learn to receive experience with more clarity and ease, we begin to see ourselves as well as others with less judgment. And we might begin to see that we are to whatever degree also still acting out of and have in the past acted out of ignorance, acted out of forgetfulness, acted out or more accurately reacted out of old, conditioned, (coughs) habituated places of suffering many times ourselves. And so we change. We begin to meet ourselves as well as others with an open-hearted clarity and more and more compassion. The 13th century Zen master Dogen spoke about 
Buddha nature and its relationship to impermanence. And he said this, We do not just have Buddha nature, we are Buddha nature. When things are seen in their fleetingness and ephemerality, their impermanence, not only is understanding great wisdom born, but also the other pillar of deepest insight, great compassion, impartial care, love, that may even include one's enemy. Probably most of us, at times, have had a very strong identification with our face and our body in relationship to how it looked when we were younger. When my mother was in her late 80s and early 90s, there were times when the two of us would find ourselves standing next to each other in front of a mirror looking at ourselves and looking at each other. And at one point when we were doing this, she said to herself and to me, I see an old woman. It's so strange. And she kept repeating over and over, it's so strange. It's so strange. I see an old woman. I've changed so much. It's so strange to see. Once when she was 91, and we were doing this, standing in front of the mirror together, she said, I look older than everybody else in the whole world. (laughs) And then she said, it doesn't match how I feel inside. It's so strange. And she went on again about, it's so strange, it's so strange. Is it strange? I mean, is it strange? Really, is it? Stranger than what? It's just life doing its thing. Life being lifey. Maybe life is just strange, that's all. (laughs) One of the times that I was teaching in Israel, I was given this poem by an Israeli poet. Rahel Chalfi, and she called it, <clears throat> calls it such tenderness. Such tenderness in our bodies when they abandon us slowly, reluctant to hurt us with a sudden jolt, gradually, wistfully, like a semi-sleeping beauty, they weave for us tiny wrinkles of light and wisdom, not faults of an earthquake, an airy network, cracks of horror, How kind of our bodies that they don't alter our faces all at once, that they don't break our bones with one blow. No, cautiously, like a pale moon bestowing its glow, they illumine us in a net of grieving nerves, fold our skin at the edges, harden our spines so we can withstand it all. Such beauty, such tenderness in our bodies that gradually betray us, graciously prepare us, Tell us in whispers, little by little, hour by hour, that they are leaving. Have you ever looked at yourself 
in the mirror for a long time. Not just a moment or two, but for a long time. Just focused and really looked for a while. It keeps changing. It just keeps on changing, that image in the mirror. Whose face is this? Who is this face? Who sees? On one long retreat that I was sitting, I spent time outside quite a bit, observing the grasses. Every day in this late fall season that I was sitting this retreat, and noticing that the grass was losing its moisture. It was drying up, losing its color, changing shape, changing form, curling over. I was quite acutely aware of this every day, watching it. Are we really any different than this? What is the Dhamma of grass? No matter how much moisturizer we use, no matter how many vitamins we take, no matter how many energetic walks we take, or how much yoga we do, no matter how much good healthy food we eat, our skin dries out, our hair loses its color, our bodies change shape. No matter who we are, or how hard we try, we just don't stay young. This mass of skin and bones has its schedule to keep, and there's absolutely nothing we can do about it. And some words from the Buddha. Contemplation of impermanence should be cultivated for dispelling the conceit, I am. For when one perceives impermanence, Megiya, the perception of not-self is established. With the perception of not-self, the conceit of I am is eliminated. And that is Nibbana, here and now. In a poem by... a poet called Liesel Mueller. She calls it fugitive. My life is running away with me. The two of us are in cahoots. I hold still while it paints dark circles under my eyes, streaks my hair gray, stuffs pillows under my dress. In each new room, the mirror reassures me I'll not be recognized. I'm learning to travel light like the juice in the power line. My baggage, swallowed by memory, weighs almost nothing. No one suspects its value. When they knock on my door, badges flashing, I open up. I don't match their description. Wrong room, they say, and apologize. My life in the corner winks and wipes off my fingerprints. It's hard to see how we can continue to keep what in this culture 
is almost like a secret. With everything changing and aging and multitudes doing the dying. If we're really, truly inclined towards freedom, we'll have to give up the notion that change or even death is a catastrophe or detestable or avoidable or strange. Our practice directs us towards learning directly, experientially, about change. The macro and the micro cycling of life. And that we, our body-mind continuum, is not somehow separated out from this process. At the age of 18, my closest high school girlfriend and I went to Stratford, Ontario for a few days to see some Shakespearean plays. And on our way home, we were in an automobile accident and my friend was killed. It was really pretty amazing. One minute she was alive and she was driving the car and we had had three really wonderful days together. And the next moment she was lying in the middle of the highway and myself with just a a few scrapes and bruises and I was washing her dying body with water and then she was just gone. And this was really an extremely powerful wake-up call for me. Not long after she died, I resolved that I would fully live life fully every moment, every second, I think I told myself. Because now I knew that life could end in a second. And, of course, I've forgotten my resolve many times. But I've also remembered it many times. This experience with its very lucid insight into impermanence was a big part of what eventually guided me towards the Buddhist teachings and practices. Although, in my 18-year-old self, I didn't think of it or word it in this same way. It's been interesting over the years. Interesting to see how this resolve to live fully every moment has unfolded. There's been an ongoing letting go of many of the complexities and seeming necessities of of what we could call normal life. Living more fully has evolved more and more to meaning living more simply, which has allowed me to then be more fully with the moments of living, the process of change, the beginnings and the endings, the births and the deaths. As a lay practitioner, this letting go or renunciation has evolved over the years to be a relinquishment of that which doesn't serve awakening. And as I'm sure many of you have found, it's a process that unfolds quite naturally through our practice. Either by a conscious choice, a decision made between this or that, or just simply really being present with very clear, mindful attention and responding 
in whatever ways are healthiest and most appropriate, both in relationship to oneself and in relationship to others, which at times may result in letting go or renouncing some of one's our, our habitual ways of engaging or, or not engaging, both inwardly and outwardly, including recognizing and letting go of some of our attachments, which doesn't at all mean rejecting the people who are closest to us, but rather this letting go uh, gives us the possibility of relating to people that are close to us, in fact, in what might be a new way. There's a Native American teaching from the Cherokee Feast of Days that says this. It's about autumn. Can there be anything more beautiful than the seasons of a tree? A tree stands in beauty from year to year and keeps its grace and dignity. We learn when we watch a tree. It constantly prunes itself, continually sheds any excess. The Buddha said that living a single moment seeing the impermanence of all conditioned things is more valuable than living a hundred years without seeing it. Clear and sure insight into Anicca leads us towards the end of confusion and anguish and towards the understanding of the cause of suffering. Very surely knowing the momentariness of all appearances opens the door of insight into the conditioned, impersonal, and sometimes the word empty is used, nature of things, the nature of all phenomena. In our thinking, most of us assume that permanence provides security. But in actuality, although change might be difficult, and at times quite disturbing, at least at first, as we open to it, we get and we get to know it more deeply. And Nietzsche can be a very profound inspiration to go deeper in our practice. We may also come to realize that on one level it's really truly a gift of life. So consider this. What if nothing ever changed? Nothing ever, ever changed. Can you even imagine what that would be like? It would be an incredible nightmare. The worst. No change, no life. In 1985, my house burned down. Uh, No one was there when it happened. My three adult sons and I were away visiting my mother, who was living in Mexico at the time. And a few days after we arrived in Mexico, I received a phone call from a friend who lived down the road from our 
house, which was in the Michigan woods. And he called to tell me that my house had burned down to the ground. Well, my first response uh, on this phone call when he told me that was denial. I said, you're kidding. (laughs) But, of course, (laughs) who would call a friend long distance (laughs) uh, on Christmas and make a joke like that? He wasn't kidding. (laughs) So after we finished our brief uh, conversation, I hung up the phone, and I cried very hard for about 15 or 20 minutes. And my mother, who was uh, standing nearby, just put her arms around me and held me, didn't ask any questions, and just held me while I was crying. And then after that, uh, my brother, who was also visiting, we sat down and talked, my brother and I sat down and talked, for a couple of hours. And after the end of this couple of hour conversation, the fire turned out to be a gift. I didn't have any things to hold me to bind me anymore. The spiritual path had burned its way open for me, we could say. And I'm sure, as as some of you know, in Asian countries, it's really not at all unusual for people in their 50s and 60s whose family responsibilities are essentially finished to go and then live the rest of their life as a spiritual life. To make a a long story short, uh, about uh, one year after that fire, I ended up going to Asia for about a year and a half, and I practiced quite ardently, quite diligently while I was there. And then I continued in a similar way uh, upon coming back to this country. If it wasn't for that fire, there's quite a uh, strong possibility that I wouldn't be here with you now in this way. That huge change was a great gift that is still unwrapping itself. And a haiku from Basho. Since my house burned down, I have a better view of the rising moon. Some words from Carlos Castaneda from his book, The Journey to Ixlan. The thing to do when you are impatient is to turn to your left and ask advice from your death. An immense amount of pettiness is dropped if your death makes a gesture for it to you, or if you just catch a glimpse of it, or if you just have the feeling that your companion is there watching you. Not long before Carlos Castaneda died, he and three of his friends were having lunch together. And this is uh, from Michael Ventura, who was one of these three friends at that lunch. He was much thinner, older, obviously ill. But for all his fragility, he seemed much livelier, happier, and even funnier. A woman at the table said she loved her job, her husband, and her child, but still she felt a lack. She had no spiritual life. How could she achieve a spiritual life? Answering the woman, Carlos didn't change the lightness or generosity of his manner. 
Yet a steely thing came into his voice, a tone that made his words pierce all of us. He said that when she got home at night, she should sit in her chair and remember that her child, her husband, everyone she loved, and herself were going to die, and that they would die in no particular order, unpredictably. Remember this every night, and you'll have you'll soon have a spiritual life, said Carlos. Later in the conversation, this woman asked how she could discipline herself to follow his advice and follow it deeply so it wouldn't be just an exercise. Carlos said, you give yourself a command. On the page, there's no duplicating how he said it. He spoke quietly, but it was as though he'd suddenly jammed a knife into the tabletop. What's that mean, one of us asked. It means you give yourself a command. And that was that. A command is not a promise. A command is not trying. A command is something that must be obeyed. His tone invoked something deeper than the idea of mere will. His was a call to action. He wasn't talking about mulling or analyzing or wishing. To step on the path, you step on the path. There's no substitute for that. About a year later, the woman who asked those questions at our lunch sent a pamphlet that Carlos requested she send on to me. And one passage goes, Sorcerers understand discipline as the capacity to face with serenity odds that are not included in our expectations. For them, discipline is a volitional act that enables them to take anything that comes their way without regrets or expectations. For sorcerers, discipline is an art, the art of facing infinity without flinching, not because they are filled with toughness, but because they are filled with awe. Discipline is the art of feeling awe, says Carlos. And of course, the truth of Anicca must be learned over and over again. Because we don't grow in a straight line, but in ascending and descending and tilting circles. And what makes this all bearable is awe. That undefended, open-hearted quality we could call awe in relationship to the way of things. The truth of impermanence is a gateway out of the feeling of separateness. It's a gateway out of the feeling of self-centered existence. And we begin to understand that we are intimately woven into this endlessly changing, reflective web of life. And we also really, truly begin to understand the suffering in ourselves and in others, the suffering and the anguish by trying to hold on in in resisting the truth that every facet of life within us and surrounding us is not fixed, it's not permanent, it's not static. We and it are intricately woven together with everything constantly changing and everything reflecting everything in this many-hued and faceted jeweled web of life.
our daily practice right here in retreat and in our daily life brings us to confront, sense, and receive the river of change and uncertainty, the river of anicca. Our continuing diligent practice is bound to render us more patient, forgiving, generous, and inclusive, with good humor and goodwill, with kindness and compassion and wisdom. As the understanding of Anicca deepens, it actually brings a great relief and a lightness into our life. We no longer need to haul around such a heavy load. There's the time and the energy available then to live to our heart's content. And closing the talk this evening with a a poem by the Australian cartoonist and poet Michael Lunick. And with every poem that Michael Lunick writes, he draws a cartoon. So I have to describe the one that goes with this. It's a line drawing of a man standing up and in one hand, one hand he's holding a frying pan and his arms stretched out straight to the side and in the frying pan is a big mound of oh, black stuff with smoke billowing out of it. And his head is turned towards it and he's looking at it with his eyes wide open. And this is the poem that goes with it. We give thanks for the invention of the handle. Without it, there would be many things we couldn't hold on to. As for the things we can't hold on to anyway, let us gracefully accept their ungraspable nature and celebrate all things elusive, fleeting, and intangible. They mystify us and make us receptive to truth and beauty. We celebrate and give thanks. Sit quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.